A few years before his death, I spoke to Sir Jack Brabham. The obvious start was to get him reminiscing about the old days. To my surprise, he almost immediately said, you should speak to Ron Turanek. Ron had a long friendship with Brabham, who helped him no matter which team he was in, and then held the official position of the design expert behind the cars that carried the Brabham name. It wasn't just a passing comment, a polite thank you, thrown into a speech about yourself, in the style often seen at the Oscars. It wasn't even a formal recommendation to broaden the research. Sir Jack's eyes lit up with enthusiasm. He seemed clear that he was saying that he felt any discussion of his career needed to consider his mate, and his mate deserved credit. Ron Turanak passed away recently at the age of 95. Someone who is close to motor racing and the characters behind the events is celebrated motoring journalist Will Hagen, who joins us now. Will, thank you very much for your time. A pleasure, David. Ron was a workaholic, very firm opinion, strong-willed, but reticent to speak. Was he easy to have a conversation with? It was, I had him at a lunch a little while ago, and uh, he said, oh, the sound's too loud, or I can't hear it properly, or something, you know. He said, look, Ron said of himself, and he, he saw it as a, as a shortcoming of his, he said, I lack social skills. He never felt that he easily mixed with people. He was always looking to do some more work. In fact, when he was asked a little while ago, what was the best car you ever designed? And he said, the next one. (laughs) He was a guy that just was committed, as you said in your intro. Um, and, And this was the amazing thing about the guy, that he started competing in motor racing himself, as did Jack, in the 1940s. In fact, when he was 16 years old, he'd read a book about the uh, auto unions and Mercedes-Benz of pre-war, and he hadn't, knew nothing about car design. And he, he thought, oh, a swing-arm rear axle like they had with um, uh, leaf springs across, there'd be enough fr- friction in the leaf springs to uh, stop the axle lifting and for, for you to have a need for shock absorbers, for dampers. So he did that. And he said, uh, unfortunately, I rolled over and I needed 16 stitches in my face. (laughs) Well, you learn by experience. You do. And as he said, if you don't learn from your mistakes, well, you're just not learning at all. Um, He was an equal partner with Jack. People say, oh, Jack won a championship building his own cars. No, he didn't. He had some input to the cars, which Ron Toronac designed and built and was an equal partner in that business of Brabham Racing that won two drivers' championships, one for Jack in 66, one for Denny Holm in 67, and two constructors' championships, a deed that's never been done and never will be done because of the complexity and specialisation of various areas of motorsport these days. But uh, just an outstanding guy. And I'm sorry, but to look at it another way, in the 19... 19- 40s and early 50s, he with his brother, Austin Lewis Toronac, who uh, headed Saab in Australia at one stage. And of course, it's Ron Austin Lewis Toronac that gave the name Ralph for the cars that he built in the 40s and 50s, but then later in the 70s, 80s and into the 1990s. He just worked away at making these things in, as I say, in the early 1950s. Then Jack wins a world championship. He decamps off to Europe in 1955 and wins the world championship in a Cooper in 1959, the first rear-engined or mid-engined racing car. 
to win the championship and realises that a lot could be done to improve it. And he sends a letter to Ron, who'd been working with him back in Australia, and he says, look, I think we could improve the rear suspension, get rid of the transverse leaf spring, lower the car, use coil springs and so on. And uh, Ron gets involved in that. So in 1960, in what became known as the low-line Cooper, which the Cooper Car Company didn't want to do anything about, but which Jack and Ron Toronek did plenty about. Um, so within a space of less than 10 years, he's gone from building specials in Australia to helping a guy win a world championship. I mean, he was just remarkable. And at that stage, he's born in 19, early 1925, so in that stage, he's, uh, he's just 35 years old and not with an enormous amount of experience at anything like that level of motorsport. He had very much seat-of-the-pants understanding. He had a feel for it. I, I think he actually, you said, in the war he was in the RAAF but then got into involved in cars. Was it that uh, seat-of-the-pants understanding that really made him such, well, a, a, a hackneyed word, but really quite a genius in understanding what was going on? Well, I'm not sure, again, whether it was seat-of-pants and indeed... Um he, he was just a very cautious person, very methodical. And I can remember him years ago telling me that a weld on a steering column on a race car broke. He hadn't done the weld, but one of his people had. And he was absolutely mortified. And he said, that's never, ever going to happen again. And, you know, his cars, unlike Colin Chapman, who was building Lotus as light as you could, and, and in... Chapman's idea of a perfect car was that uh, it broke down after it had won the race, you know, on the cool down, lap back to the paddock. Ron Toronak's attitude was the exact opposite. And when he got back into his, into route cars later, and he became the world's biggest manufacturer of racing cars. He made 1,500 cars. And one year, he made 360 and everybody that was trying to get to Formula One and many who did get to Formula One were all driving routes. They were the car to buy. And what he said was, I want the next one to be a little bit better than last year's, but last year's is still useful to the people who might want to update it, who might want to sell it to somebody else or whatever. So he was never trying for a revolution. He was just looking for cautious, careful sensible, intelligent, long life for the cars and improvement along the way and it served him monumentally well. We'll come to how much he really did care for the customer which I think is very important but let's go back. So they started it and, and he met Jack in Speedway but I think they then competed together in a major 1953 event. Ah, oh, well, you're probably talking of the Red X trial, are you? Yes, indeed. The first of the Round Australia trials. Look, they'd been involved in hill climbing. Jack, had, in late 40s, had done a bit of speedway and he'd gone well, but they'd seen each other at hill climbs in the late 40s, early 50s, and were basically both doing similar sorts of things, you know. The 53 Red X Round Australia trial, which actually... It says around Australia, but it didn't go to Western Australia, uh, as all the, the later trials did. But it was just a, an event, uh, David, that, that got everybody, whether you were into trials, into racing, or a happy amateur, or whatever. People now haven't, could not envisage how thrillingly popular they were. There were thousands of people 
lining the route wherever they went, whatever town they went to. At the start, at Sydney uh, Showground in Driver Avenue on the 30th of August, 1953, it just was a, an astonishing event that, as I say, became so popular. And, and, and look, it was an opening up of the country post-war. A lot of the roads were dirt and rough, and people would say, oh, well, it takes you eight hours to get from here to Serena. And the, the trials cars were doing it in two and a half or something, you know. <laughs> and uh, it just, people like Toranek and, and Jack Brabham just was something you had to do. Taranak said that Jack drove the fast bits and he navigated, and then in the other bits he drove and navigated while Jack slept. <laughs> Jack went to England in the mid-50s, perhaps happy to get away from Australian motor racing bureaucracy to some degree. Now, I don't think Ron had an official position, but they kept in contact and he they kept suggestions going. Is that how it worked? Yeah, very much so. As you say, they sufficient respect for each other at that stage. Ron had got out of the driving business and was into the, the building business and, and design and Jack was obviously very committed to uh, to driving, but he'd been caught short on um, putting advertising on a car and calling it the Red X Special and Cam said, no, you can't do that, you know, and Jack said, oh, damn this. And so in 55, he went off to England with a car, selling the car here, Cooper Bristol, which he wished he'd taken with him. So he stumbled around for a little while getting the, the right sort of car to progress with his career as he saw it. But as you say, they kept in touch to the extent that by 19, late 59, early 60, Jack was asking Ron, what do you think of these ideas? The drawings I put in, in one of those airmail air letters. And uh, Ron got together with Jack to... Uh, greatly improved the car but uh, John Cooper felt that he didn't want to change and uh, had won a, it had won a world championship perhaps David in the in the way that the English thought in those days oh we've done well enough we don't need to do any more now you know John Cooper old man Cooper I think that the father figure was a little bit intransigent in accepting other things yet uh, isn't it a wonderful reflection of Jack and Ron's relationship mateship that they swapped ideas without necessarily having a formal agreement or necessarily money changing hands absolutely and uh, later when uh, Jack said to Ron why don't you come over here and work for me. And they initially initially talked of a period, I think, of three months. But finally, when the deal was done, Ron said, oh, and I had enough money left over to bring my wife and child as well. And back he went to where he was born. He was actually born in England, although we see him as an Australian. And his family came here with him at a very young age. But back to England he went, where, of course, he spent later a long part of his life. Which was an interesting period. You said 1925, I think he came out here when he was about three, which meant that it was just before the Depression. So it must have been a tough environment when he had reached an age where he was aware of what was going on around him. Oh, absolutely. And as you say, that uh, he joined the RAAF. And I mean, he was another one of those people who left school when he was 14. So basically the outbreak of World War Two. Uh, 1939, he was leaving school, 1938 or 39. And uh, a, a lot of people joined uh, the military service, and particularly if you were into engineering, <laughs> you got into the aircraft side of things and got 
wonderful training about that whole business of engineering and design and stresses and all the rest of it. And I was reading a thing the other day about his cars, and they said, you know, anybody can put a pile of tubes together, which is what those space frame cars were in the early days. He was a, one of the later people to go to a monocoque because he liked the business of tubes where if you bent something, you could replace little sections of the car. But as somebody said, every one of those tubes was either under compression or tension. Uh, they were just in the way they were and, and how the whole thing was put together. It was just really clever in terms of giving strength to the vehicle and therefore safety. You know, it was, um, it was very clever in that engineering side of, hang on, we've got to, to make this racing car to a certain size and to certain uh, regulations. regulations that, yeah, about uh, weight and all the rest of it. But very clever, as I say, in the basics of the engineering of, of making that sort of thing work. He was also very good to customers, wasn't he? He he didn't build a good one for you and and also ran for me sort of thing. He he and he kept going back to customers to be helpful. Absolutely, yes. Uh, again, many customers have said, "Oh, well, you know, I was having trouble with the, the car or looking for a bit more performance or something," and Ron had come along and look and say, "Oh, do this or have you checked that or whatever." And uh, they always were pleased with the, the advice that Ron gave. But the interesting thing, after he'd sold, he became the, the sole owner of the Brabham Racing Team, uh, Jack had sold his share on to Ron, and he sold it then to Bernie Eccleston. And uh, he was thinking of doing various things. In fact, he'd had an offer from Colin Chapman to go and work for him at Lotus, and a deal was almost done, literally sort of on the Thursday or Friday of a week, and early the next week, when he was uh, meant to get with uh, Chapman to uh, to tie it all down, it never happened, and he was always a bit mystified by that. So anyway, there he is, thinking he's going to get back into racing car construction. In fact, he's, he'd done that. He was in Woking in Surrey, and... Uh, a guy from Australia, Larry Perkins, rolls up with a car and a trailer and says, uh, hello, Ron, you know, what do you think of this? What should we do with it? And Ron looks over it and he says, start again. <laughs> the short of it was Larry got rid of that, went to work for Ron, and they built the first Route RT1. Is that right? So the first car, yeah, the first car that Ron built in his rebirth of the Route company was for Australian Larry Perkins, and it won the British Formula 3 Championship. He absolutely clean-swept it, and <laughs> which wasn't a bad way to start your new business. Larry Perkins was also the guy with an engineering understanding. Is that one of the reasons why you think they might have worked well together? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I remember Larry from all sorts of things. In the very early days of Warwick Farm, Jeff Sykes, came up with a thing called the Shell Mileage Marathon. And <laughs> really crazy people built tiny little vehicles that had to go a certain time and distance. I forget the actual details. It might have been 20 minutes or something around laps of the short circuit at Warwick Farm. And they had model aircraft engines. These things were tiny. Well, one of the people that built one of these was Larry Perkins. And I remember him arriving at Warwick Farm with this thing, and it looked like the sort of front of a Boeing. It looked <laughs> funny little 
cockpit section at the front and so on. And, you know, you, you sort of snug yourself into it and people put the fiberglass body over and around you and you're on your hands and knees, steering it almost like a billy cart. But what I liked about it, I remember Larry coming back to the paddock at one stage and the front of the thing was covered in grass because he'd had it off in his mileage <laughs> marathon <laughs> But But this was the sort of guy he was. He was always keen on design. And, you know, he's gone on to incredible things. I mean, he invented a system for helicopter maintenance, which became very widely adopted, which he later then sold. He's talked to Mercedes-Benz in Germany about the Unimog military-type vehicle, and he said, look, I love your vehicle, but it'll only do 80 kilometers an hour, and when it takes me a long time to get to where I want it to do what it's specialized in doing. So he made a new gearbox for the uh, Unimog, and Mercedes-Benz adopted it. He is so clever, <laughs> and people have no idea of how clever he is. There's a lot of Australians like that, isn't there? Arthur Bishop and the steering column. Now, there's a lovely picture. To talk about it, not just in terms of hardcore business, but mateship as well. There's that lovely photo of Sir Jack and Ron Turanak sitting at the milk bar. How would you describe that? <laughs> well, as you say, there's the centre table and the fixed benches on either side of it. And there's these two elderly guys looking at each other and uh, and discussing whatever, you know, <laughs> probably pointing to the way things were being done now in terms of cost and complexity and saying, gee, why do they go to all that trouble? Why can't they be smart? It looked like two little mischievous boys who, who weren't up to doing something wrong but were up to building a better billy cart. Every chance. But there's another picture too of the many pictures of... of uh, Ron and, and Jack doing their, going about their work over a long period. And this one is of the BT-19 Brabham that took Jack to his uh, third Drivers' Championship in 1966 and the team to the Constructors' title. And there, in a pair of... in, in braces and a white shirt, is Enzo Ferrari in the paddock in pit lane at the uh, Grand Prix looking at the BT-19 Brabham, thinking, why is this thing beating my cars? <laughs> it's, it's Enzo Ferrari looking at the Brabham. I think Sir Jack and, and Ron, I guess, to, uh, felt that part of their role in life was to beat Ferrari. Oh, absolutely. Jack said, I didn't want to drive for them, I wanted to beat them. But the other aspect of this, and you, you know, you talked of Arthur Bishop, uh, who was so clever with his steering system, but what about the Retco engine that went into those Brabham's? Just astonishing. Basically, engineered up from a General Motors design for a road car engine that never went into production. And blimey, they made it into a car, into an engine that competed at Indianapolis, competed, competed in World Championship Grand Prix, competed as a two-and-a-half-litre engine, not a three-litre Grand Prix engine, in the Tasman series. I mean, just, they built over 50 of these engines. It was astonishing. And it was a, a handful of people that designed the blessed thing. There's that sort of lovely Australian practicality there, isn't there, that I think Sir Jack's autobiography was when the flag drops, but they wouldn't let him put the second part of the expression, which was, of course, the bullshit stops. <laughs> That's right. 
get into it. And of course, all those Brabhams came with a, a nomenclature of BT, didn't they? That was, uh, I think, Brabham Turanac, that while it was commercially smart to have the, the brand name Brabham, the actual cars reflected this joint activity, this mateship that produced such great results. Completely. But I remember a very early car from Motor Racing Developments, which was the company that Jack and uh, Ron had developed. And this car came to Australia in the hands of young Gavin Newell, who later became a pretty reasonable uh, international tennis player, Tasmanian son of John Newell, who has the Simmons Plain circuit on their property in northern Tasmania. And uh, he had it out here as a Formula Junior. And in those days, that car wasn't called a Brabham. It was called an MRD. Well, MRD is very close to a French word, M-E-R-D-E, which is merd, which means shit. So that was when they stopped calling their cars MRDs and called them Brabham's. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a true story. It's an absolutely true story. I remember Catalina Park, Katoomba Circuit. Gavin Yule driving his MRD. <laughs> oh, the, the, the lovely, simple things that occur, you know. Uh, you know, Phil Irving that was behind the development of that uh, of the Repco engine. Uh, just another crazy, wonderfully passionate, quirky Australian who just was one of the world leaders in terms of engine design and and, and general engineering. He became head of Vincent Motorcycles. He wrote books galore. I remember Warren Willing, one of Australia's great motorcycle racers, and again, a clever engineer himself and team manager. In fact, he was the one that took Mick Doohan from racing 250 production bikes onto a superbike and then took him to England, <laughs> heading on towards five world championships. I remember Warren Willing saying of a book that uh, was called Tuning for Speed by... Uh, Phil Irving, the late Phil Irving, and uh, Warren said, stuff that he wrote 35 years ago is absolutely still spot on today. You could read it as a manual of how to go about making a quick engine. So we've got, you know, such clever people that just got on with being clever without looking for accolation. And when Jack and Ron combined with with Brabham Racing in 1966, had designed the cars, built the cars, and ultimately taken Jack to his third world championship. They'd come back to England in Jack's private plane, and they pulled up, or they've landed at this uh, aerodrome, wherever it was, I'm not sure exactly, um, and there's a crowd of people. And here's how innocent they are. Ron said, what's this all about? What are they here for? And they've just won a world championship, <laughs> they're wondering why anybody would be interested <laughs> I mean it's just lovely and so innocent you know they honestly didn't know that there was going to be anybody there or why anybody would be interested I think in the 1966 uh, Brabham got quite a lead and then one of uh, in uh, not the last but uh, second or third last race some of the opposition didn't finish and so he won Ron didn't know Ron was out thinking about the next race until someone came and told him oh, by the way we're world champions yeah, all of that all of that and and again just typical of the way the guys as I said earlier on what's your best car, the next one, 
And that's exactly how he went about his business all the time, not content with what's happened now. And in fact, in recent years, uh, the thing that grated with him most was that he had nothing to, to plan, to design, to think about, to get on with. He didn't want to be idle and, in, and in, indolent. You know, he wanted something to do, something to stretch his brain. You went to his 90th birthday. Was that a big event? Oh, it was fabulous. Just fabulous. They had cars displayed outside. When you get at a birthday party, you get messages from Ron Dennis, at that stage one of the leading Formula One team owners, of, in this case McLaren, from Bernie Eccleston, people like that saying, Happy birthday, Ron. I mean, just some of the top people in world motorsport saying, Well done, have a great day. Oh, it was so special. The people that were there, just the, <laughs> the passion, the warmth, the, the love, in a sense, of somebody who'd done something special and that we all looked up to him as somebody very special and we wanted to honour him in a special way. It was terrific. You took a photo at his Bondi home of him. What, can you describe that? Basically, it was a funny. It, was a, it had a few levels to it, this apartment building. It took a little bit of finding, of ringing and then pressing the right buttons and all that sort of thing. But finally, we found each other in the foyer and uh, went up to, to his apartment, had a long interview with him. And up on the wall was a painting that was actually, a lot, a lot of people thought, thought it was done by a very prominent English painter of motor racing scenes and cars and things, but it wasn't. It was commissioned of some people in Melbourne, of two people, and it was of the uh, BT-19 that uh, carried Jack to that third world championship in 66. It was autographed by Ron and by Jack, and it's hanging there on the wall innocuously, and there wasn't a lot of stuff around, there are no models of route racing cars or Brabham cars or anything like that. He didn't live in that sort of past environment. But this was on the wall, and I said, Ron, would you mind? Please, I'd love to get a photograph of you beside that picture, which I, I took two photos, one in which he was smiling and he wasn't in the other one. But it's worked so well. His daughter Jan in Queensland, near where he was over the last couple of years on the Sunshine Coast, wrote to me yesterday and said, oh, look, I love it. We don't have very many pictures of him in later years. And my camera tells me it was taken at 2.56 p.m. on the 27th of March, 2014. So it was six years ago. He was 89. And uh, they said, could we use it, please, uh, with the very small funeral that we're going to have next week? And I said, look, I feel absolutely honoured. I'd be delighted if you did. And uh, overnight, I've sent them JPEG pictures of all of that and, in fact, enlarged up the signature on the bottom of one of the pictures of, on the painting. So it, it's terrific that uh, his daughter, his other daughters in America, it's just terrific that they're able to understand now what he meant to the people in and around the area where he worked so successfully for so long, David, for so long. It was very feisty perhaps at the beginning, but people knew once you'd worked with him that he had a very sincere and honest heart. You said you had a long conversation with him. He, did he, had he mellowed then because he was almost taciturn is a word that's been used for both him and Sir Jack 
had had he had he settled into understanding his position in history? I don't know that he ever would have looked back and assessed all of that. I think he just it was just I've done this now on to the next thing, you know. And he recognises he was doing things that he was being successful and doing things the right way because people wanted to talk to him and wanted to employ him and so on. He, he was a little bit more open, wasn't he? He felt that that was one skill that he could have developed perhaps a little earlier in terms of, I think you started very early. Oh, oh absolutely. Absolutely. He, he recognised that. And in fact, probably it was that attitude of, you know, looking straight ahead focused and not being diverted that made him so good and so successful at what he did. But um, look, he was one of those people, David, who, as they say, didn't suffer fools gladly. So if you were wanting to do an interview with him, wanting to get him to a function or whatever, uh, you stepped carefully, respectfully, and uh, didn't say anything stupid or whatever, and then he was with you. But if you were going on like a clown and didn't know what you were on about, well, then you had no hope. It immediately reminded me of Len Evans, the expert in wine. <laughs> yeah. I'm not an expert in wine, but he, he could sit down and tell you stories and you didn't try and become pretentious. You accepted people who who had a much wider experience and you learnt from it. I guess Ron is like that Australian character. And again, an open person in the sense that if you worked with him, then there were no secrets or whatever. He wasn't afraid to tell people, you know, how he was going about this, that or the other, and nor was he afraid to to explain to the people who bought his cars and were trying to optimise the use of his cars. So um, he wasn't a secret person in that sense. He was open because, well, this is, this is what the business is, you know. Let's get on with it. Just one of the lovely characters, not as well known, of course, as Sir Jack or others, but still a perfect example of mateship and friendship and a passion what you were alluding to there about, you know, respecting people, because there were other Grand Prix companies uh, or teams that uh, used Ron. In fact, he designed a Trojan that very nearly won a championship too. But he came back and he did some work around touring cars and he said, no, they don't understand. They don't listen. They just think they know, know everything. <laughs> it wasn't very successful because the people just didn't, understand Ron's cleverness, which Bill Buckle, do you, you know Buckle sports cars? Mm. Well, Bill Buckle was using Zephyr front suspension on his Buckle cars. And back then he said to Ron Toronek, who again, they knew each other through motorsport. He said, Ron, what would I do with this front suspension? And Ron quickly sorted him out on that as well. Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, dear. I presume it wasn't a slight modification. No, that, <laughs> it was changing things a little bit but to, to make it work and make it ultimately a very successful car. Not commercially successful, but uh, performance success indeed. How did Ron see the modern Formula One world? Did, did he lament the passing of what was a much more personable environment to something that has become incredibly commercial? He, in a sense, but he never said that because, as he said, if I'm not involved, I'm not interested. 
So he wasn't interested in sitting there watching it all. If he had a job to do, he was delighted to get into the guts of it and to, to work on it and to analyse what needed to be done to, to be successful. But uh, he was not a sit around, look at it and grumble and, and, and carry on about how things ought to be done. That wasn't, that wasn't a job to be done, so he didn't do it. Do you think he would have embraced a lot of the huge measurements, wind tunnel testing and so on, of the modern world? Well, they, he was in an era where they did start to get into wings and things. Look, he'd have done it if that was what was prominent at the time. But I think it would have been a, a big adaptation because his strength was in the designing of the, of the, the car itself rather than uh, the wind flow in and around it. But then again, uh, and I'm wrong in, in saying what I just said because airflow and downforce and everything is absolutely essential. So, oh no, he'd have jumped on board and, uh, and got into that, recognising what it could do for the performance of the car. And to him, performance and lap times was, was the measuring stick of how well you'd done your job. He was clever enough to embrace it. Absolutely, yes, yes. He'd have recognised the benefits it could bring and so here we go, we'll get into it. And, and again, in his own clever way, he quickly learned what uh, needed to be done. You know, that juggling thing between, oh, you want downforce, but you want to minimise drag because you want to optimise top speed down the straight as well. Ah, so he understood the entire package. Oh, absolutely. He wasn't silo in his things of focusing just on one. Oh, no. Which can compromise the other. No, no. No. Sadly to be missed. Will and uh, your contribution and understanding is greatly appreciated. Thanks very much for your time. My pleasure. It really has been a pleasure. Thank you, David. And that's Will Hagen. And we were talking about Ron Turanak. If you look at the name on Brabham's cars, that they were BT and a number. And the T, of course, stood for Turanak. And it stood for a mateship, a friendship, an understanding that brought Sir Jack great fame and great credibility to those who know to his designer, Ron Sidney Turanek.